Welcome everyone to another edition of Governed by God, a biblical look at law, civics, and the government. My name is Eric Leupold. Thank you for joining me today. In keeping with the current series that we're doing, uh, this upcoming episode today is week five of my God and Government class that I'm teaching at Hilltown Baptist Church. So this week, week five, is on the topic of biblical principles of government. Does the Bible have anything to say about how government should be structured, and what are some examples in history in which those principles have been put into place? So I hope that you enjoy this week's episode, and without further delay, week five of God and Government. All right, well, let's go ahead and start uh, opening up in a word of prayer, and then we'll, then we'll begin. Let's pray. Uh, dear Lord, we thank you for this beautiful day that you've given us, Father, uh, for our time that we can gather here safely and freely uh, to study your word and to look to what you have to say about how we uh, live our lives as a society. We pray that you would bless our discussion, our time this morning. May it be glorifying to you, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so just to give a, a quick rundown, where we've talked in the past about sphere of sovereignty. Uh, we introduced that back in week one, looked at their overlap, uh, when spheres fail. Uh, bless you. Uh, then we looked at the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven and uh, what that means and what it, what it means to live, live as citizens of, of both heaven and on earth. Uh, then Brad led a, discussion, led a discussion on faithful stewardship, citizenship, how are we supposed to live today as citizens. And now today we're going to look at some biblical principles of government. So what does the Bible have to say about government at all? Is there any kind of guidance that we have uh, from it? And then uh, next week we'll look at civil disobedience and resistance. So that should be a, a fun a fun discussion and topic. Maybe fun. Maybe fun. Maybe fun. Maybe. Yeah, you can. <laughs> Pitchforks, torches, all those things are fine. No, it's uh, and then uh, week seven, I'm actually going to be away, and so Brad will lead again on that final week of uh, basically an open discussion, Q&A, uh, any topics that, that you all uh, wanted to discuss that weren't brought up, any questions that you had, let's have that, uh, that good that discussion. Yes. Yes. I forgot, actually, that we were going on vacation. So. That's right. I was like, Brad. Can you take this, please? I don't want to just erase it, you know. So, thank you. <laughs> You'll survive, I think. Yeah. Um, <laughs> maybe, maybe. So, we, I try. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Yes, it's available on my podcast, but it's also available on the, the church website. So the church, uh, I send the link out to Renee. And she's posting links on the church website for Sunday school uh, classes there. And um, I think she's going to send that an email, because I don't have all your email addresses, so maybe she'll send it out to the to the church that it's available. But yes, I have a podcast, Governed by God, um, if you want to check it out there as well. I can't hear people reading the verses, but Yeah, it's hard. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, it's true. So... All right, so this is just, again, this is the, the picture that we've been looking at, a summary form of things. There's at least four different uh, types of government out there, and all of them are to be in subjection to the authority of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. All right, so 
The question, though, is, is that uh, you know, each fear has their own uh, responsibility, uh, but is there any kind of ideal or is there any kind of structure or, or principles for how each of these uh, governments is to be structured and is to function? And essentially, it's a question of form versus freedom. So to kind of give it a, a picture understanding of what I'm talking about, form is the essentials. What is the, the bare minimum of what this thing is and what it's supposed to do. And freedom would be the non-essentials, areas of, of flexibility. And I'm going to briefly uh, show some examples of that in both self-government, family government, and church government, but we'll spend most of our time today looking at uh, the civil government realm. So just to give an example, with regards to self-government, there are things that all Christians, all people are supposed to do. And the fruit of the Spirit is that. These are non-negotiables. We are to bear the fruit of the Spirit. We're to avoid um, sexual morality, uh, you know, all, all, these, all these sins, greed, uh, adultery, murder, uh, hatred. And we don't do this very well, of course. We're not perfect, but that is what it means to govern yourself. But at the same time, God does allow freedom. And there are, uh, one example of that is Romans chapter 14, verses 1 through 12. Uh, I'm not going to read the whole thing there, but that section has to do with uh, conscience regarding food and holy days. Some people uh, view one day as more holy than, than another. Some people view it all days as, as alike. Or some have no problem eating meat that's in the meat market, and others have a problem and only eat vegetables. And Paul says not to, uh, not to bind each other or to burn each other. They shouldn't look down upon each other. Uh, for how they view holy days and the eating of food. So those are just some examples of what we have freedom in as individuals. Uh, there are some essentials that we all are to aspire to and to hold to. And then there's areas of conscience, of freedom that we can disagree with each other on and still maintain uh, a baseline of unity. And the ideal, though, is basically to be more like Christ as we govern ourselves. Uh, we see this in Ephesians chapter 5, verses 1 through 2, which says, Therefore be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. So we're to imitate God and to walk in love just as Christ loved us. So Christ is, is the picture of what it means to govern ourselves. Yeah, go ahead. We're to imitate Jesus, right? He kept all the holy days. Yeah. He also didn't eat shellfish. That's true. That's true. And uh, he did, of course, many other things. He died on the cross. Yes, exactly. Yeah, we have freedom in Christ. So um, because of Christ has come, some things have, have changed as far as um, uh, the law. So even Jesus himself made all foods clean. Yeah, that's true. He's the fulfillment of the law. No, that's right. Yes, yes. He is the word incarnate. Yes. So he is, and and so we have God's word uh, here, and then we have Christ, which is the the incarnate word of God. Um, and then Christ obviously fulfills the law perfectly, which we cannot do. All right. But then as Christians, hmm? How do you imitate that? How do we imitate that? Well, uh, we look to the word here. And we want to look at all of God's laws in light of Christ. So Christ says, um, don't hate your brother in your heart. 
it's, it's, you're guilty of murder, actually, if you do that. So it's not just don't actually physically kill somebody Ill illegally. It's don't hate them. Uh, or don't commit adultery. You know, the Pharisees said, well, we're just not going to actually commit physical adultery, but everything else is, is fair game. And, and Jesus would say, no, even if you lust after someone who's not your spouse, you've already engaged in adultery. So he, he, he heightened the law. He made it even more <clears throat> stro stronger than it was, at least under the eyes of the, of the Pharisees. And so we want to look at all of the law in light of Christ. So another example would be we don't sacrifice animals anymore in the temple. Well, the temple has been destroyed, but also because Christ is the ultimate sacrifice, right? So we don't need to atone for sin by sacrificing doves and, and bulls and goats and things like that. And if we were to do that, we would actually be violating, like what the book of Hebrews says, don't go back to those sacrifices. That's 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 horrible. Like it's unthinkable that you would, you know, he's talking to the Jewish people, uh, that you would go back to the animal sacrifices when you have, when you have Christ. So so God does demand still. His law does demand sacrifice for sin, blood sacrifice, but it's in Christ now that it's been fulfilled. So as long as we are putting our faith and trust in Christ, we have essentially, you know, the law has been fulfilled because Christ is that sacrifice. So the Well, um, I'm still not sure exactly what, what you mean by that because... Well, if I want to imitate Jesus, I want to imitate everything he does. Do I imitate not eating shellfish? Uh, well, I would say that's not a problem anymore because God still demands cleanliness, right? But to be clean is something that Jesus does to us. He is the one that cleanses us. And we are still to be separate from the pagan nations around us just as, just as Israel was to be secret. Yeah, yeah. So to give, uh, spend a few more minutes on this, which is fine. This is good stuff. This is good stuff. This, and we can talk more afterwards if, you, if we want to. But essentially, I take a law of, of the Bible and a law that's given to Israel. And I say, okay, what is the principle of this law? What, what, what is God trying to get at here, right? So, um, you know, like, don't sacrifice your children to Moloch. Okay, so that's idolatry, right? But Moloch is still being worshipped today, and we could argue that abortion is a sacrifice of children to Moloch, right? The blessing of economic well-being, fruitfulness, more children, more money, more wealth. That's what Moloch promised, and you offered your children to him, okay? Now, uh, I also look at other laws. Those are That's more of a clear-cut law, but laws about uh, getting... Uh, eating the shellfish, right? You know, why is that given to Israel? What is the purpose of that law? And then, because we, we do believe that uh, God's word is not just stopped in the Old Testament. So we then say, now that Christ has come, what does that do to that law? What does that mean to fulfill that law? So we are imitating Christ, but we are not going to go on a wooden cross and pay for the sins of the world. We can't imitate Christ in that way if you're talking about like a mimicking, like a perfect mimicking. Christ never got physically married, and he was celibate his life. So I don't think that Christians are called to be celibate, not get married, and to die on a cross physically. So I think we need to be careful how we say, you know, imitate. And I think Paul, uh, he says, be imitators of God, walk in love, right, as Christ loved us and gave himself for us. So there's a sense in which you will give yourself 
for your friend or for your spouse. You're going to give yourself in a sacrificial way, but not in the exact same way that Christ did. That's unique, what he did. Um, and we're just kind of the image of that, if that makes sense. Like Adam was made in the image of God. God is unique, but Adam is in his image, but he's not God in the same way. Uh, I hope that kind of answers your question. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Thank you. Appreciate that. No, and we'll definitely have some more discussion to follow. Um, so, okay, family government. Now, we see that there is a uh, form or uh, a structure there. It's supposed to be one man and one woman for life, Genesis 2.24. Uh, freedom is allowed in certain uh, limited circumstances for divorce, for remarriage, Matthew 19. There's also the concept of not being unequally yoked. So uh, you can marry somebody, but they need to be a, a fellow believer, right? God places restrictions on that. Also, you have the Levitical laws. You can't marry your sister, your sibling, your close relative, your father, your mother. Like you can't do things like that. So God... God puts uh, boundaries in place. These are the essentials of what um, you cannot compromise. And then there is some freedom allowed as far as, you know, who can you marry. Uh, within these limitations, you can marry someone from another state. You can marry someone from another ethnicity, uh, you know, whatever the case may be. So, uh, and the ideal, though, is a Christ-like monogamy. 1 Corinthians 7.2, Paul writes, but because of the temptation to sexual morality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. So even though polygamy was technically allowed by God, that was never the ideal situation. That was not the ideal in the garden. And as a result of the fall, polygamy was tolerated and rules were put in place by God to, to limit that. But the ideal has always been one man, one woman, both of whom are in Christ together for life. That is the ideal of the family government, and then children uh, fall um, after that, of course. For church government, again, we see in Scripture that churches are to have elders and deacons. Okay, that's 1 Timothy 3, 1 through 13. Titus also talks about that, the qualifications for elders and deacons. But there's freedom, and Paul talks a little bit about that, and you know, if one of you comes with a hymn, a teaching, a lesson, there's no guidance in scripture on how many hymns we're to sing, okay, or how long the sermon needs to be, or, you know, how exactly you distribute the, the, the Lord's Supper, okay, so there's freedom in, uh, in how the church governs stuff, or how many elders there are, how many deacons there are, how long do they serve for, like, and here at Hilltown, elders uh, serve for two, well, three-year terms, and they can serve for two terms, and then they have to take a break, so six years at the most, then they have to take a one-year sabbatical. That's not in Scripture, but that's just a general uh, principle, a wise principle that we've implemented uh, here at Hilltown, and it's been that way for, for many years. So the point is that there are essentials that constitutes what a church is, and then there is flexibility. But And bless you. Uh, the ideal, though, is a fullness in Christ. Uh, Ephesians 4, 11 through 13 says, and he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. So fullness of Christ, maturity, unity in the faith, that's what we're striving for uh, when it comes to how the church is to function in the structure itself. <coughs> all right.
So now we'll get into some, we'll spend the rest of our time looking at civil government. So we see the form of it is God's deacon to punish evil and praise the good. Would someone please read Romans 13, 1 through 7? One through seven. Yeah. Oh, there's much more. Oh, is there more? Oh. <laughs> yeah. That's the main one, though. <laughs> For there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good. You will receive his approval, for he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For because of this, you also pay taxes, for the authorities are ministers of God attending to this world of things. Pay to all what is owed to them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. Thank you. And would someone read First Peter 2, 13 through 14, please? Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every authority instituted among men, whether to the king as the supreme authority, or to governors who are sent by him to punish those who do wrong, and to commend those who do right. Okay. So we see in both passages there's both form and freedom given. Uh, there is the essentials of what government is. It's, it's God's deacon to punish evil and to praise the good. There's a job description given to civil government and how it's to function. But there's also freedom. <clears throat> As Peter says, every human institution, whether kings, governors, and the, you know, so whether we're living under a monarchy or a republic or we have majority vote or electoral college or whether we have townships or boroughs or counties, it, it doesn't really, there's freedom in how the government is structured and who you're submitting to, but there are certain essential requirements of submission, but also the duties and, and responsibilities of what civil rulers are to do. And there's also an ideal, we would say, and I think there's, there's two things I want to bring out in that. The first is the ideal of, the, of a spirit of authority, Christ-like authority, uh, in Mark 10, 41 through 45. If that, uh, someone could read that, please. When the ten heard about this, they became <coughs> indignant with James and John. Jesus called them together and said, You know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Thank you. So there, there Jesus is obviously uh, comparing two different spirits of leadership and authority. Uh, the, the bossy kind, the, the tyrannical kind, where... Uh, you're, you know, the people are the servants and the ruler is the master or kind of the flip, the reverse of that which is the humble Christ-like kind where the ruler serves the people and it's interesting that in our, in our western cult, uh, context we speak of authorities as civil servants right? a civil servant where, where does that come from? that comes from a, a Christian worldview Nebuchadnezzar would not have called himself a civil servant 
he's the king of kings, at least from his perspective uh, in Babylon. He's, he's uh, oh, king, live forever. He's that kind of king. He's not a, he's not a civil servant. So uh, there's a, there's a Christ-like authority that is the ideal for what it means to, to govern and, and lead others. And I think there, an argument can be made that there is an ideal structure as well. Could someone please read Deuteronomy 4, 5 through 8? See, I have taught you statutes and rules as the Lord my God commanded me, that you should do them in the land that you are entering to take possession of it. Keep them and do them, for that will be, that will be your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the people, who, when they hear all these statutes, will say, Surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. For what great nation is there that has a God so near to it as the Lord our God is to us whenever we call upon it? And what great nation is there that has statutes and rules so righteous as all this law that I set before you today? So there's Moses telling the people of Israel, when you go into the land... Uh, this is what you're going to do. You're going to follow the Ten Commandments. You're going to follow God's law. And all the nations around you are going to look at you and they're going to say, wow, what a wise and understanding people. What kind of God is this? What kind of laws are these? These are righteous. These are good. So uh, I think an argument can be made and we'll, we'll see historically that actually this has taken place in several parts of uh, the world, particularly the Western world, uh, in which the pattern of Israel was used as the ideal structure for what does it mean to, 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 to govern ourselves. And let me just give you some examples as to why uh, maybe you'll find some of these uh, uh, very um, familiar to yourself. The first is the rule of law. Uh, could someone read Deuteronomy 17, 14 through 20? When you come to the land that the Lord your God is giving you, and you possess it and dwell in it, and then say, I will set a king over me, like the nations that are around me. You may indeed set a king over you, whom the Lord your God will choose. One from among your brothers, you shall set as a king over you. You may not put a foreigner over you who is not your brother. Only he must not acquire many horses for himself or cause the people to return to Egypt in order to acquire many horses, since the Lord has said to you, you shall never return to that way again. And he shall not acquire many wives for himself, lest his heart turn away, nor shall he acquire for himself excess silver and gold. And when he sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself in a book a copy of this law, approved by the Levitical priest, and it shall be with him, and he shall read it in the, all the days of his life, that he may learn to fear the Lord his God by keeping all the words of this law and these statutes and doing them, that his heart may not be lifted up among his brothers, and that he may not turn aside from the commandment, either to the right hand or to the left so that he may continue long in his kingdom, he and his children and Israel. So there you have a very different picture than what was typical at that time. In Israel, the king is under the law. He's under God's law. The constitution is the Ten Commandments. That's the constitution of Israel. That is their national constitution. And the king is supposed to write a copy of that himself, and it's going to be graded by the priests. So the judges are going to judge whether he wrote it correctly by hand himself, and he's going to follow it all the days of his life. And so the king is under the law. He's not above the law. Uh, he doesn't make law. He, his job is to enforce the law. And that's uh, very distinct from the kings of Babylon, Egypt, and Assyria, who viewed their kings as divine, 
as a picture of the of the divine or uh, an imprint of the divine on 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 earth who just by sheer decree alone can create law and can just uh, rule with absolute power uh, but this king of Israel is a servant and is himself under the law of God uh, and we see also uh, a very interesting covenantal relationship between the king God and the people. Could someone uh, re please read 2 Samuel 5, 1 through 5? That's in the Old Testament, right? Yes, it is. Okay, cool. Oh, yeah, here it is. <laughs> then all the tribes of Israel came to David at Hebron and said, Behold, we are your bone and flesh. In times past, when Saul was king over us, it was you who led out and brought in Israel. And the Lord said to you, you shall be shepherd of my people Israel, and you shall be prince over Israel. So all the elders of Israel came to the king at Hebron, and King David made a covenant with them at Hebron before the Lord, and they anointed David king over Israel. David was 30 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 40 years. At Hebron, he reigned over Judah seven years and six months. And at Jerusalem, he reigned over all Israel and Judah 33 years. Thank you. And could someone please read 2 Kings 11, 17 through 20? I thought I handed that one out. Did I hand that one out? Yes, no? Anyone got 2 Kings 11? I have Oh, thank you. Jehoiada then made a covenant between the Lord and the king and people that they would be the Lord's people. He also made a covenant between the king and the people. All of the people of the land went to the temple, Baal, and tore it down. They smashed the altars and idols to pieces and killed Matan, the priest of Baal, in front of the altars. Then Jehoiada, the priest, posted guards at the temple of the Lord and took with him the commanders of hundreds, the Kerites, guards and all the people of the land and together they brought the king down from the temple of the Lord and went into the palace, he entering by the way of the gate of the guards. The king then took his place on the royal throne. All the people of the land rejoiced and the city was calm because Athaliah had been slain with the sword of the palace. Okay. Thank you. So in both those passages, we see a covenant is made between the king, the people, and God. And in the second king's passage, there's two covenants, uh, a covenant between uh, God, the king, and the people, and between the king and the people. So these are uh, very, uh, pro these, are, these are promises that are being made um, there. And so there's, there's a covenantal aspect uh, there to it that involves the three parties of God, king, and people. And essentially, <clears throat> the king and the people are to serve God, and the king is to serve the people. And that's really the idea behind what's going on, going on there. So we see the rule of law, covenantal aspect uh, uh, between these uh, groups. We also see a separation of powers. Uh, we have the legislative branch, the law-giving branch. Could someone read Exodus 24:12? Yeah, so that's just a quick example of Moses receives the law directly from God and then he gives it 
he gives it to the people. So the law comes through uh, the prophets. They receive from God and they communicate that law to the people. That is essentially, in, in we see a picture of the legislative branch there. Then we have the judicial branch, the law applying or the law judging people. The priests and the judges, they're to see if someone broke the law or not. Could someone read Deuteronomy 16, 18 through 20? So no partiality, no bribe, justice and only justice. And their job is to interpret the law and apply it. They don't create the law. They are the judicial branch uh, there. Um, and, yeah, go ahead. The uh, judges, if they break the laws, are they held by the law? Like, say a judge does do partiality. Do they, who, who gets that? I imagine that they would be uh, judged by a higher judge or maybe the king. Perhaps I don't know entirely, but there was a, a tiered system oh, of yeah, yeah, yeah. There's definitely accountability, or there should be. Uh, in other passages, we see cities of refuge are given. Uh, the jury concept is in Numbers 35, where a person who's accused of, of manslaughter or murder uh, gets held in tr uh, at a trial at a, at a neutral city, and then the, the congregation determines whether there's guilt there or not. And if the person is guilty, then they are um, disciplined or, or executed. Um, we also see uh, the executive branch where uh, we have the enforcing agency. So could someone read Deuteronomy 19, 11 through 13? So the avenger of blood, uh, especially prior to the monarchy, was an official office. It was typically the oldest male relative of the uh, victim or the victim's family. And their job was to uh, punish the criminal. And uh, they were the part of the executive branch, if you will, the law enforcing branch. So if someone was judged to be guilty of, of murder, they would be handed over to the avenger of blood, and it was the avenger of blood's job to execute that person there uh, in, in some of those instances. So uh, now, of course, with the monarchy uh, comes into play, then the, then the king is kind of the ultimate, if you will, of enforcing the law, but there are still avengers of blood you know, used during, uh, during the monarchy. So we see this separation of powers uh, uh, principle in, uh, in the Old Testament. Now, what's interesting is that Adam was all three offices. Adam was prophet, priest, and king. And after the fall, after the entrance of sin into the world, we see that they're separated over time, especially after the exodus. Um, we, we see all three of them in distinction in 1 Kings 138. Could someone please read that? So Zadok the priest, Nathan the prophet, Benaiah, son of Jehoiada, 
Venus bodyguard took Solomon down to Gihon Spring, where Solomon with Solomon riding on David and Rose. Yeah. So this is in the anointing of King Solomon. We see three groups of people there. You have Zadok the priest, Nathan the prophet, and Benaiah the military commander, the king's sword. The ex the ex we see a picture of all three branches anointing the uh, King Solomon as the new king over Israel. Uh, could someone please read Isaiah 33:22? Did I hand that one out too? So we do see that in God, reunited in Christ, the judge, the lawgiver, the king, the prophet, the priest, and the king is united in Christ and in God. Go ahead. Nope. Yeah. So we see that picture there. Uh, to continue uh, with the concept of, of federal or federalism, um, you may have heard that word before because we live in a federalist system technically in the United States. And federal comes from the root word fetus, which means covenant. Okay. So we live in a covenantal country right now, the United States, where we have multiple states and the people and the federal government all in covenant with each other. Uh, to each have responsibilities and roles and certain spheres of, of authority there. Uh, but that goes back even to the pattern of Israel. Israel was a federalist system, a, a covenantal system. They had 12 sovereign tribes with established, state, uh, established borders. Could someone read Numbers 36, 7 through 9? So the idea there is that the tribes are not to be diminished, not one tribe absorbing the other tribes and destroying an entire tribe. We're trying to maintain a stable boundaries of all the tribes. They have their own jurisdiction, their own sovereignty, and that's to be honored and maintained uh, throughout this system uh, so as to maintain uh, stability and, and liberty as well. Question, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, theocracy basically means rule by God, right? And in one sense, someone could argue that every country is a theocracy. Every nation has a God, whether it's Baal or Moloch or Nebuchadnezzar or Yahweh. You know, blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord, right? And I think um, there's always... You know, even in, even Rome had had gods, right? The Roman Empire, in a sense, was a theocracy because the god is the ultimate authority of that system. So whatever that ultimate, whatever your authority is, that is your god, the one that there is upon which there is no further appeal. You can't appeal beyond that god, and the one in which you get law. So I would say, uh, you know, Israel is a theocracy in that their law is given to them by God. 
right? And God is their ultimate ruler. But underneath that, they have their king, they have their judges, they have their tribes, they have the elders of their tribes, and they have this federal system. Uh, and I think that we could, every country today has gods, and I think our own country does too. Now the question is, which god do we have? Who is our ultimate authority? You know, some could say the Supreme Court is the ultimate authority, but they don't make law. They interpret law, right? Are the people the ultimate authority? Yeah, maybe. In that sense, demos. Demos is the Greek word for, for the people. The people become God, and they get to make whatever law that they, that they want. Um, but I think an argument can be made that uh, uh, our country originally did have uh, the Lord as, as God, uh, but we have deviated from that. Uh, yeah, you have a question? It's interesting that word tribe because up until now, I never remember our two political parties being called tribes. Okay. But you hear it all the time now. Yeah. When I, when I see it here in these verses. Sure. I would actually akin, I would, I would attribute more of these tribes to states. These tribes have established boundaries, their own authority, their own elders, and will come to see their own military. We'll see that in a second here. Uh, there's a congregation, 70 elders as the congregation or the Congress. Could someone read Exodus 24, 1 through 2, please? Then he said to Moses, Come up to the Lord, you, Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu, and 70 of the elders of Israel. You are to worship at a distance. But Moses alone is to approach. The Lord, the others must not come near, uh, and the people may not come up with them. Yeah. <clears throat> That's just to give the example of they did have a, a Congress-like structure of the 70 elders representing all the 12 tribes of Israel. And with the anointing of the kings, um, you know, when they say things in Scripture like, and all of Israel anointed, you know, King David as king, we got to be careful. I mean, is it possible that every single man, woman, and child from the entire land of Israel just congregated? All, all multiple millions of them just congregated and they all anointed the king? It's possible. But there's also a sense in which by all, they also mean they were all represented there through these elders. All the elders came and anointed. All the people came and anointed uh, uh, the kings uh, um, over Israel. We also see a militia National Guard system. Uh, could someone read Judges 20, verses 1 through 11? <clears throat> the children of Israel came out from Dan to Beersheba, as well as from the land of Gilead, and the congregations gathered together as one man before the Lord of Mishnah. And the leaders of all the people, all the tribes of Israel, presented themselves in the assembly of the people of God, 400,000 foot soldiers who drew the sword. Now the children of Benjamin heard that the children of Israel had gone up to Mishnah. Then the children of Israel said, Tell us how did this wicked deed happen? So the Levite, the husband of the woman who was murdered, answered and said, My concubine and I went into Gibeah, which belongs to Benjamin, to spend the night. And the men of Gibeah rose against me and surrounded the house at night because of me. They intended to kill me, but instead they ravaged my concubine so that she died. So I took hold of my concubine, cut her in pieces, and sent her throughout all the territory and the inheritance of Israel, because they committed lewdness and outrage in Israel. Look, all of you are children of Israel. Give your advice and counsel to him now. So all the people arose as one man, saying, None of us will go to his tent, nor will any turn back to his house. But now this is the thing which we will do to Gibeah. 
we will go up against it by lot. We will take ten men out of every hundred throughout all the tribes of Israel, and a hundred out of every thousand, and a thousand out of every ten thousand, and make provisions for the people, that when they come to Gibeah in Benjamin, they may repay all the vileness that they have done in Israel. So all the men of Israel were gathered against the city, united together as one man. Thank you. So we see there, because of the crime that was committed against the Levite priest, he cuts up his concubine into pieces, probably 12, <coughs> and sends them to all the tribes of Israel. And then these tribes congregate together, and they all agree to send 10% of their soldiers, uh, their militia, essentially their national guard, to form one army and to go bring judgment against uh, Gibeah for what has been, has been done there. So every tribe has their own uh, military uh, system and is to be called up when needed to engage in warfare or uh, putting down rebellions or punishing uh, wicked uh, wicked doers. Yeah, go ahead. Wasn't that, uh, didn't they fight against Benjamin, the whole tribe? Mm-hmm. So 11 went against one. Uh, well, I think if you read later on, they tell Benjamin, give up, give up Gibeah and you'll be fine. Just the guilty party needs to be punished. And then Benjamin says, take a hike. And then Benjamin, the yeah. It, it could be. It was almost a war between the tribes. I mean, Benjamin wasn't completely eradicated, but they were severely punished because they sided with evil instead of instead of doing the right thing and giving up uh, the, the wicked uh, people to to the to the congre- congregation to the Congress there. Yeah. Um, now we see also in Scripture that attempts at centralization. Uh, 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 taking these different, uh, the power, legislative, judicial, and executive, and trying to centralize it was punished by God. And <clears throat> we see this in 1 Samuel 8, 10 through 20, when they wanted a king like all the other nations. Could someone please read that? And Samuel told all the words of Yahweh to the people that asked him a king. And he said, this will be the manner of the king that shall reign over you. He will take your sons and appoint them for himself, for, he, for his chariots, and to be his horsemen, and to some shall run before his chariots. He will appoint him captains over thousands and captains over fifties. He will set them to ear his ground and to reap his harvest and to make his instruments of war and instruments of his chariots. They will take your daughters to be confectionaries and to be cooks and to be bakers. They will take your fields and your vineyards and your oliveyards, even the best of them, and give them to his servants. They will take the tenth of your seed and of your vineyards and give to his officers and to his servants. They will make he will take your men servants, your maid servants, and your really young men and your asses and put them to his work. They will take the tenth of your sheep and you shall be his servants. And you shall cry out in that day because of your king which you shall have chosen you. And the Yahweh will not hear not hear you in that day. Nevertheless, the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel. And they said, Nay, but we will have a king over us, that we also may be like all the other nations and that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. Yeah. So, they want a king like the pagan nations. They don't want a king like the way God described it. They want a Nebuchadnezzar, Pharaoh kind of king. And they want him to be their judge, to go out before them and to fight their battles for them. Um, now, that, that language of go out before us is similar language. Uh, could someone read Numbers 27, 16 through 17? Okay, and then Exodus 32, 1, please. The people 
take you home, help make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. Yeah. So that's just two examples of the similar language of going out before us. Uh, we have Moses uh, anointing Joshua to, re- to replace him as the shepherd to go out in and amongst the people. But then you have also Exodus 32 where the people uh, create the golden calf and they want this calf to go out before them uh, as, they, as they live uh, in the land. And so this kind of a, of a king accumulates power for himself. He accumulates wealth. He, he takes 10%, this, this pagan-like king. Uh, he takes more than, than what God requires and puts himself on the same level as, as God. And the result is uh, servitude upon the people, uh, accumulation of power, and tyranny by the king. And when the people cry out, God will not hear them. Uh, we see this, uh, this punishment of centralization of power here in these two passages. Uh, could someone read 1 Samuel 13, 8 through 15? Did I send that one out? Yeah. Oh, okay. He waited seven days, the time appointed by Samuel. But Samuel did not come to Gilgal, and the people were scattering from him. So Paul said, bring the burnt offering here to me, and the peace offering. And he offered the burnt offering. As soon as he had finished offering the burnt offering, behold, Samuel came. And Saul went out to meet him and greet him. Samuel said, what have you done? And Saul said, When I saw that the people were scattering from me, and that you did not come within the days appointed, and that the Philistines had mustered at Mishnah, I said, Now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal, and I have not sought the favor of the Lord. So I forced myself and offered the burnt offering. And Samuel said to Saul, You have done foolishly. You have not kept the command of the Lord your God, which he commanded you. For then the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. But now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart, and the Lord has commanded for him to be prince over his people, because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. And Samuel arose and went up from Gilgal. The rest of the people went up after Saul to meet the army. They went up from Gilgal to Gibeah of Benjamin. Thank you. So Saul takes Samuel's responsibility. He performs the duties outside of his appointed sphere, and he presumes to take power uh, to himself to offer sacrifices that is not the king's job to make. Uh, so he doesn't obey God and honor what God has established, but presumes to take upon himself responsibility that is not his. And so as a result, he, is, he loses the kingdom. Um, take, uh, could someone read Second Chronicles 26, please? Now he had a censer in his hand, 
to burn incense, and when he became angry with the priests, leprosy broke down on his forehead uh, in the presence of the priests in the house of the Lord by the altar of incense. Yeah. So there's a clear example where King Uzziah is trying to burn incense as the, as a priest, but he's not anointed to do so, and the priests tell him, "Don't be don't be doing that. Uh, you don't have the authority to do that." And he doesn't care. He you know, deviates from it and as a result becomes leprous. Yeah. Had he asked Uzziah, would it have been okay? King David did that. David uh, took the food. Jesus talked about it. King David taking the food from the priest. I think he asked about that. And I think he got permission. Maybe, maybe, maybe. We have to look into that in more detail. But here, he's just presumptuing the power upon himself. He's He has no intention of honoring the authority of the priest. He's going to just do it himself. And he's going to violate that overstep his boundary, I should say, his authority. The point is, in all of this, is that recentralization of power is only found in Christ, who is the prophet, the priest, and the king. As was just written, we have, the Lord is our judge, the Lord is our lawgiver, the Lord is our king, he will save us. And any attempt to put that hope of salvation in any other person is idolatry. Any other person. Yeah, go ahead. I think it's interesting, I'm reading here, the attempts at centralization were punished by God. It seems to me that when you look at like Revelation, that mm-hmm. it seems to be painting a picture of this kind of global, yeah. um, centralized government, or at least some type of governmental system that has global reach. Mm-hmm. Um, d- during right during the time of God's judgment, mm-hmm. and so it even seems like that link together of centralization with um, with God's judgment or punishment um, mm-hmm. seems to be even connected mm-hmm. there. Yeah, I think so too. Yeah. Um, now, I want to, in the last few minutes, I want to also leave some room for, for discussion, too. I just want to go over some few historical examples as to how this pattern in, in Scripture was applied uh, into our culture today. So this is not the first, uh, first person to do this, but in uh, around 900 A.D., we have Alfred the Great, who was king of the Saxons uh, in, in England, modern-day England, uh, he wrote a book called his Doom Book, or the Law Code, and you can find it online today. Uh, it begins with the Ten Commandments, and it begins with all the laws of, of Exodus, okay? And then after that, he has other laws uh, that apply to, to the Saxon kingdom. And uh, here's what he says at the, at the end. He makes a statement about his law book that he's disseminating to all of England. He says, These are the laws which the Almighty God himself was speaking to Moses and commanded him to hold. And after the only begotten Son of the Lord, our God, that is Christ, came to earth, and he said he did not come to break or suppress these commandments, but to increase them with all goodness. And he taught mild-heartedness and humbleness of spirit. And then at the end of the law code, Alfred says this, Then I, Alfred, king of the West Saxons, showed these to my counselors, and they said then that it pleased them all to observe them. And so we see uh, some of the early formation of English law was based upon the Ten Commandments and the laws of Moses in the book of Exodus that uh, King Alfred uh, put into place. Uh, Fast forwarding several hundred years, we have the words of John Calvin from the Institutes of the Christian Religion. Uh, He writes this. He says, the characteristic of a true sovereign is to acknowledge that in the administration of his kingdom, he is a minister of God. He who does not make his reign subservient to the divine glory acts the part not of a king, but a robber. He, moreover, deceives himself who anticipates long prosperity to any kingdom which is not ruled by the scepter of God, that is, by his divine word. 
For the heavenly oracle is infallible, which has declared that where there is no vision, the people perish. And then I uh, want to give a couple examples from our modern American context. Uh, the first is from a man named Samuel Langdon. He, in 1788, he was the president of Harvard University, and he was a pastor in Portsmouth, New Hampshire. And this is a sermon that he gave uh, around the time uh, when the New Hampshire Convention was voting to adopt the U.S. Constitution or not. And here's what he says, uh, referring uh, first to Israel. As to everything excellent in their constitution of government, except what was peculiar to them as a nation separated to God from the rest of mankind, the Israelites may be considered as a pattern to the world in all ages. And from them we may learn what will exalt our character and what will depress and bring us to ruin. Let us therefore look over their constitution and laws, inquire into their practice, and observe how their prosperity and fame depended on their strict observance of divine commands, both as to their government and religion. And then he, then he changes topics and looks at the current uh, proposed U.S. Constitution uh, there that they're voting on. He says, God in the course of his kind providence has given you an excellent constitution of government by which all that liberty is secured which a people can reasonably claim. And you are empowered to make righteous laws for promoting public order and good morals. And as he has moreover given you by his son Jesus Christ, who is far superior to Moses, a complete revelation of his will and a perfect system of true religion, plainly delivered in the sacred writings, it will be your wisdom in the eyes of the nations and your true interest and happiness to conform your practice in the strictest manner to the excellent principles of your government adhere faithfully to the doctrines and commands of the gospel and practice every public and private virtue. By this, you will increase in numbers, wealth, and power and obtain reputation and dignity among the nations, whereas the contrary conduct will make you poor, distressed, and contemptible. They don't the now. No, they don't. They probably want to forget that this man was president of Harvard back in 1788. Got another one for you here. We've got our good old uh, John Adams from a letter to Dr. Benjamin Rush in 1807. The Bible contains the most profound philosophy, the most perfect morality, and the most refined policy that ever was conceived upon earth. And then his son was also president. John Quincy Adams said this, For so great is my veneration for the Bible, and so strong my belief that when duly read and meditated upon, it is of all the books in the world that which contributes most to make men good, wise, and happy that the earlier my children begin to read it and the more steadily they pursue the practice of reading it throughout their lives, the more lively and confident will be my hopes that they will prove useful citizens to their country, respectable members of society, and a real blessing to their parents. Letter to his son George in 1811. Uh, this is just a, a fraction of what you can find from our founding fathers and before about the religious Christian, clearly, in a way, theocratic, uh, 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 formation of the United States. Um, and in conclusion, I want to read to you a quote from a, a, a modern um, professor. But here's what he says. He says, uh, there have been three critical federal experiments in the history of humanity to date. The Israelite tribal federation described in the Bible was the first. The second was the Swiss Confederation. The third was the United States of America. And that's uh, Dr. Daniel Elazar, professor of political science at Temple University and at Bar Elan University in Israel in his book, Exploring Federalism, back in 1987. So 
anyways, I, I say all this to simply point out that the Bible does provide, I do believe, principles and uh, guidance on how to structure a society to do so to avoid tyranny, to preserve ordered liberty, and to um, bring about human flourishing, essentially. And I think in the Western culture, particularly English law and American society, we did that. And the question is, are we going to preserve it? Or are we going to deviate from it? What are we going to do next? And so um, and when, when people challenge and say this is not a Christian nation, it's not a theocracy, I would encourage you to challenge that a little bit. Ask them what they mean by theocracy um, and, and what they mean by a Christian nation because I think the evidence is, is far more in the favor of yes, it was, rather than no, it was not or never was. Um, so with that, I want to leave a few minutes open for questions, thoughts. Yeah, go ahead. Christian nation? Hmm. Uh, depends what you mean by. I think there's a big difference there. Maybe. Maybe. You know, Jefferson, Franklin. Well, I just quoted from John Adams, and he was not a Trinitarian. I just think of Christian mm-hmm. in the truest sense mm-hmm. as a disciple of Jesus. Oh, sure. Sure. Well, I guess I suppose I use the term like, you know, it's kind of like uh, if I were to say things like, hey, all of Hilltown was at uh, the picnic a couple, a couple weeks ago, right? And, and, and then you say, well, I wasn't there. I was on vacation. And I'm like, well, yeah, but when I say all of Hilltown, I see a vast majority. But what if we reverse that? What if you tell me, you know, hey, all of Hilltown was at the picnic? And I was like, no, I was there. There were like five people. It was not all of Hilltown. It was a little fraction of Hilltown. So when we use common language, I guess when I say Christian nation, I would say predominantly a Christian nation. Not every person was a born-again Trinitarian believer, no doubt. But uh, it, was, it, was, it was the God of the system, was our God, I would say. Yeah. Dan. Maybe say, for instance, like Israel today. Mm-hmm. I think everyone in the probably say they're Jewish nation. Yeah. Probably. But he can redeem the nations. And we're to make disciples of all nations. Yeah. 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 Um, you use the word Western world, and I've heard Kuhn say that. I've also heard the Muslims say that. So yeah. what is the definition? Well, essentially, it's hard to narrow down the definition of Western. I mean, Greco-Roman is typically that kind of culture that borrows from the Greco-Roman world. Um, and then was heavily, I would say, redeemed by, by Christianity. And um, now we see a Western culture is a culture that was originally a Greco-Roman culture that was transformed by, by Christ, I would say, as opposed to uh, Middle Eastern uh, Arabic or Islamic culture or a, uh, ancient, uh, an ancient Eastern culture, a Buddhist culture, that kind of far, the Far East um, would would be a little different there. Is that does that kind of? Yeah, it's no, hard to make it geographic. No, my brother, he's not a non-believer, mm-hmm. uh, but he and I told him what I learned in church history was mm-hmm. that uh, 
clear that, that when the church split with Catholic and, and Constantinople, yes. they argued over the one sentence, Mother Mary, Mother of God, <laughs> because the Eastern thought is like begets like, so if it's Mary, the Mother of God, then it is, is God, mm -hmm. versus when we, and when they, they say Jesus is the Son of God, that means he is God, mm -hmm. versus the Western thought is, uh, no, that doesn't mean that, it mm -hmm. means something else. Yeah, the Eastern Orthodox Church and the Western Church also <laughs> differed on uh, the use of, well, originally the use of images and, and, and pictures and stuff like that, but yeah, uh, you have the differentiation on, and also does the, does the spirit proceed from the father or from the father and the son? We had a person from Japan come over, she goes, I can't believe how you talk to your parents. Now, we don't question our parents. Oh, yeah, and sure. I asked the guy from Siberia, and he said, I said, why doesn't the eastern side question authority? He said, because Satan questions authority, therefore we don't do it. So that is why they believe uh, Interesting. you don't question name, but they're always truthful. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, I think there's a ditch on either side of the road of I never question. I don't think for myself. I just I do what I whatever I am told versus I will do nothing that I am told. I will become my own. I will become my own God. If you will, and I think there's a healthy. I think the Bible puts in place, and we'll look more at that next week about civil disobedience and resistance. What does the Bible have to say about about resisting uh, people who are not obeying God? What do you do about that? Yeah. So, uh, so it's probably safe to say that uh, at the founding of the country, the vast majority of the citizens were had a biblical worldview. That's probably. Do you agree with that? Yeah. Yeah. So. Um, Gallup released a poll last week. Yeah. So it's kind of discouraging news. So it, it, it asked the, has asked this question since 1976. Um, basically, do you have a biblical worldview? Mm -hmm. Do you accept the Bible as God's word? Yeah. So it peaked in 1985 at 40%. Mm -hmm. Last week it was 20%. So the question, I guess, is so that's discouraging. We got work to do. How do you govern? They will be ungovernable. That's what will happen. They will get a king like the other nations. That's what they're going to get. That's what they're asking for. That's what they're asking for. So then what is our role as believers, as the vast, strong I would say there's maybe a multi-pronged attack here. I mean, our role would be A, Let's look at our history. You're, you know, you are deviating from ancient English Saxon history going back over a thousand years. So there's that. Do you care? Maybe, they maybe they don't care. Maybe they don't care. But then you also point out what you're going down is tyranny. You're going to get that. You're going to get centralization of power, a new Babel, a new Nebuchadnezzar. You're going to get that, and eventually maybe you'll cry out to God. But when you do, He might not hear you. So you want to warn them against the coming the coming danger and really call them to repentance because if you're a slave to sin you will eventually become a slave to somebody else uh, a political a political slave well israel split into two countries it's very possible yeah the babylonians the romans the Romans split into east and west, and then west fractured. The Romans would say yeah. we're still here if you, if you look at the Christian history. Well, they, <laughs> they would. The Romans are still here. But they're, that's, that's kind of stretching it a little bit. That's like stretching it. Like. Right. 
We still have the empire. Yeah, go ahead. Just a little bit more. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So that's including mainline like Protestant. Oh, it's all, all professing Christians. Yeah, 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 yeah. No, that's. We have a lot of. We, there was also a statistic yeah. about pastors, and that was also a low percentage of ones that had a Christian worldview. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's discouraging. We were warned about this, right? At the end of, as we get more and more towards the end, that's true. that many will fall away. That's true. This shouldn't be a surprise to us. No. No, it doesn't mean we stop fighting no, and stop striving. Absolutely That's right. No, I agree. And we trust that the Lord is still Lord. Right. He's still king on the but throne. The issues of the day, yeah. right? So, so gay marriage, gender confusion, the abortion issues, all of those are really shaped and defined by our biblical worldview. Mm-hmm. So if you've got 80% mm-hmm. of the people who don't share that view, then it's basically a reed in the wind, right? Whatever... Yeah. Whatever yeah. was popular in the time is what's going to be blown about by every wind of doctrine. So that's yeah. what makes June 24th <laughs> so spectacular. There you go. I mean, the Roe v. Wade. And if you, I've only read about 70 pages of the ruling yet. It's 213 pages long. My goodness gracious. But read it. He Samuel Alito, he goes all the way through English common law. So he goes back to Anglo-Saxon law, like. That, that, that's why they go back to this. And I didn't get into that discussion of common law versus positive law, but that is a also a distinction of, of God's law book is a common law system. A few principles with case laws by which you use wisdom to make judgments. Whereas positive law is I make a tome this big that says you may do this when these conditions da, 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 da. And so, you know, you have people complain about God's law being oppressive. That's about this thick, but then the U.S. tax code is <laughs> volumes and volumes big. Which one's more oppressive? So, anyways, that's that. I saw in Doylestown, someone told me a sign that said, abort the court. And that's just showing you, like, people don't understand how our government works. They just get rid of these people. They made a decision we don't like instead of understanding these people are there to interpret a constitution yeah. that has helped our country run yeah. quite well for 200 plus years. Yeah. So yeah. Well, Nebuchadnezzar would like that. Yeah. Just like, get rid of these people. They That's make right. a decision we don't like when they're yeah. saying the constitution doesn't give you a right to yeah. bring it back to the state. You vote as a people yeah. on if you want this. Yeah. Yeah. LA Times had an editorial yesterday yeah. that talked about the um, illegitimacy of the constitution. So that's really mm-hmm. what they want to Right. Because mm-hmm. they can't, the, the, the founders created a way to create new laws, right? It's called amendments. Yeah. Sure. But you have to have, what, two thirds? It's pretty hard. It ain't going to yeah. happen for abortion. It's not going to happen in our lifetime anyway. So if you throw out the Constitution, why not? Then write whatever you want. Just remake it. So basically, that's the end of the <laughs> yeah. yeah, Dan, and then one more. Yeah. Probably not a place we can all enter in this conversation, 
conversion like Jonah and Nineveh. Yeah. You know, and so uh, you know, as children of God, He has a purpose for it. Almost the people we're with in our wide range of highways that we encounter, right? Or we call rapids. Yeah. Where you see an impact in the city as a result of gospel truth, right? That goes from person to person. You know, idols get fractured because yeah. of that behavior changes. So I feel like in some ways, you know, I'm thinking, okay, well, I'm not that Leo. I'm not going to have those conversations with people. Sure. Not. But by the grace and mercy of God and his gospel, he is transforming. Yeah. Seek to go to the city. That's right. That's right. Yeah. Last one. During the Revolutionary War, 15% only agreed to the revolution. I mean, 85% did not want one. I would say more than 30%. But we'll we'll debate that. We'll debate that afterwards. That shows you. All right, guys. We are out of time, way out of time. Thank you all. See you all next week, okay? Well, I hope that you enjoyed this week's class on biblical principles of government. If you have any questions or want uh, further clarification on some of the topics that I covered today, please uh, email me at thegbgpodcast at gmail.com. You can also find uh, me on uh, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, Gab. Just look for Governed by God, and you should be able to message me there, and I certainly will get back to you as soon as I, as soon as I can. And as a just brief heads up, next week will be uh, my last recording for the season. I usually take a one-month break in the month of August. So uh, after after this week's episode, we have next week, which will be week six of my God and Government class. should be the last week of that course. And then take a break for the month of August. And I'll be back in the beginning of uh, September. Uh, so please uh, tune in again next week for week six of God and Government. And until then, take care and God bless.